Hello, and welcome to episode 124 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Paradin, historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. With me, as always, is retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, former skipper of the fast attack submarine USS Indianapolis, Commodore Submarine Squadron 3 in Pearl Harbor, and many other postings. How are you this morning, Bill? Doing great, Seth. My audio is coming by way of Jupiter today, so apparently I've got some kind of audio delay going on, but hopefully that won't affect us too much. We'll, we'll, we'll handle up on it. We'll handle yeah. up on it. Uh, this week, we are always happy to welcome back our good friend, a fantastic historian, former United States Marine, uh, Dave Holland. Dave, how are you this fine morning? Yeah, doing well. And thanks again for having me. And I'm really looking forward to our discussion today, as always. Absolutely. Hey Dave, we got a, an observer, somebody watched the podcast comment to me, there's no such thing as a former Marine. And I had to agree with them. How would you like to be referred to if not former Marine? No, I'm happy for former Marine. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> Doesn't bother you as much as it bothered that person. But anyway, some people we'll go, does. No, I just, I just don't want a Sergeant Major to be waking me up at five o'clock in the morning to go do PT. Ugh. So if I was a Marine, I might potentially do that. So I'm a former mm -hmm. Marine. <laughs> you don't own me. <laughs> Play it safe. Yeah, Play it anymore, safe. anyway. Yes. Well, all right. As the campaign for Guadalcanal winds mercifully down, uh, we're going to shift gears here a bit and focus on some of the other events that happened towards the very end of the campaign on the island. Um, and these are the actions that occurred in the later months, latter months of the campaign, November, December, January, uh, January 1943. Uh, those other forces, of course, that I'm referring to, not just 1st Marine Division or the Raiders or 1st Raiders or anything. Uh, we're talking about the United States Army as well as the 2nd Marine Division and the 2nd Raider Battalion, too. Um, with all the primary focus being on the Marines and Navy offshore, Marines onshore and the Navy offshore, uh, it's easy to forget that the Army also served on Guadalcanal. And it, too, was involved in bitter fighting. And I'm not just talking about the 164th Marines at Henderson, either. Um, the Army and the 2nd Marine Division played a vital role in the final offensive on Guadalcanal. And that's what we're going to talk about here today. Uh, they were the major force that effectively eliminated what Japanese remained on the island to a point after the 1st Marine Division left the island in December. Um, so with that, we're going to talk about some of these locations like Coley Point, Mount Austin, Galloping Horse, Jifu, Seahorse, and all those good things there. Dave, um, let's talk about the November action, uh, or I guess offensive, really, around Coley Point, or that occurred around Coley Point, using, utilizing some of these people that we're talking about here. What's going on here after Henderson Field? What are we looking at here? All right, so uh, in our last discussion, we uh, discussed um, what occurred uh, after the Battle of Henderson Field. So the Japanese Marine Offensive uh, was, was stopped, and Vandegrift, the division commander, had gave him the opportunity to go on the offensive um, because the Japanese, obviously, uh, he, he was going to take advantage of their setback. So throughout the campaign, they'd been wanting to push the Japanese past the Matanikau. As we've seen, there was three battles of Matanikau earlier. So they want to push them past the Mechanical, um, past a village called Kukumbana, and all the way to the Poha River, which is a few miles uh, west of uh, Kukumbana. So it gave Vandegrift the opportunity, so he took that advantage. So one November, he kicked off a five-battalion assault across the Mechanical. So the, they built, the engineers built three bridges. They pushed off. The 5th Marines uh, basically led the charge. 
so they pushed off. Everything went well until they got to a place uh, around the base of Point Cruz. So when they hit Point Cruz, uh, one company of uh, the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, was struck fairly hard. It was C Company. Um, and they lost a lot of Marines. Um, at the same stage, um, two five under a famous Marine called Lou Walt later became a famous Marine. Um, they um, flanked and, and helped circle. Then we had our, our friend Bill Whalen with the Whalen Group and some of the Second Marines. So what they were supposed to do was uh, hit that point, and then the Second Marines were going to push through to Cucumbana. So this is a fairly um, important action. It's not really spoke about in Guadalcanal history. Mm. Um, every time I go there and I take people there, it's around the Point Cruz area. And I talk about the fighting around Point Cruz. And we'll see later in the episode how the Army and, and later some of the, um, the 8th Marines of the 2nd Marine Division uh, hit that Point Cruz line. There was some severe fighting in there. And it's one of the parts of the campaign that most people don't even uh, realize. I mean, there was one... Uh, U.S. tour group there when I was there one time, and that was where all the main hotels uh, were. And I think we discussed it in an earlier episode uh, with the um, the Monroe and the Little mm-hmm. Dunkirk action. That's where that was fought at too. Um, there's the most intense fighting in the Guadalcanal campaign and prolonged happened in that small area. And mm-hmm. I was listening to this tour group, and one of the tour group uh, persons basically told me that their tour guide, uh, U.S. tour guide group, said, "Well, nothing really happened in this area." I was thinking back. I said, well, just in my vision here, I can see where two Medal of Honors occurred and a number of Navy crosses and intense fighting. So they hit that area and they got bogged down. There was one Marine named Anthony Casametto. Mm-hmm. He earned the Medal of Honor and he was later presented in 1980 by um, Jimmy Carter because there was no witnesses around. And Casametto earned his Medal of Honor at that, at that area too. But anyway. He was a machine gunner, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a machine gunner. And I think um, in their last episode, or one yeah. of the episodes we've done a few now yeah. um there was i mentioned there were five medal of honors earned on guadalcanal uh, by enlisted um, men and all five were machine gunners mm-hmm. on land mm-hmm. um and dave that was uh, second only to iwo for marines i don't know Is that right I, possibly yeah if i think mm-hmm. back on it, I mean, six month campaign i mean it was i think officially was 21 medal of honors not yeah. not all mm-hmm. by marines of army and navy sure earned at guadalcanal yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was, were, yeah, it was probably probably a yeah. I can't think of another campaign that many were were earned. Not on one place. And but. Seth, in your, in your opening, you referred to the 164th Marines. Of course, that's what how they referred to themselves. Right. They were the 164th Infant, Infantry Regiment, though, mm-hmm. and they weren't here yet, were they? No, they yeah, were they, here. Yeah, they were. They were here. They were, okay. Because remember, we we discussed them in the October battle. They they arrived on the uh, the 13th. Right. Now the battleship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Welcome they were the only, yes, only U.S. Army ground unit there at the time. So mm-hmm. everything was going well for the Marines. I mean, they, and after 1-5 got a setback, 2-5 and 3-5 basically circled the, the Japanese in a pocket at Point Cruz and eliminated the Japanese, about 350. Um, so the offensive was going quite well. The Japanese didn't have any really other um, troops on the ground, and they were on the back foot, and the, and the, the Marines were pushing all the way, and they would have went to Cucumbana. But... Naval intelligence, ultra radio intercepts basically said that the Japanese are going to land a whole division at Coley Point. And Coley Point is east of the perimeter. Now, all this action was happening west of the perimeter around the Matanica um, and Point Cruise. Mm-hmm. 
So in theory, open. this would be behind the Marine lines then? Well, kind of kind of on the eastern flank of the Marines mm-hmm. and the western flank. So at this stage, Vandegrift, uh, because you, you had more than a reinforced division on scene, the western uh, sector he gave to a general called General Seabury, and he was mm-hmm. the assistant division commander of the Americal Division. So he was on, on the island then, U.S. Army. And you know, take that back. The western part was given to General Rupertus, who was the assistant commander of of the um, of the um, first Marine Division. First Division, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, it's four twenty in the morning. <laughs> I'll reset that. So, <laughs> you, you got was, an excuse. Seabury <laughs> was the west western um, um, sector commander, and you've got Rupertus was the eastern sector commander. So he divided it. So. Uh, Intel said they were landing at Coley Point in the 38th Division. Mm-hmm. So Vandegrift hadn't left that many troops in the perimeter around the airfield. So obviously he had to stop the offensive um, happening out west and um, send some troops to the east to see what was happening at Coley Point. And the only troops you really had was the 7th Marines. Um, and obviously they were very, um, very spent because they had fought very hard in the October battles. But that's all they had. So he stopped the offensive. He didn't pull him back at that stage, but he stopped the offensive. And the Japanese um, intelligence later in Japanese reports after the battle said if the, if the Marines and in in part of that had one battalion of the 164th then involved in that, if they would have kept pushing, they would have probably almost ended the campaign there. They would have really pushed all the way as far as they wanted to go. Um, so it was on a, a thread that the Japanese held due to the fact that the, the intel was saying the 38th, the whole division was going to land on um, Vandegrift's east east flank, so that mm-hmm. sets up the Battle of Coley Point. Yeah, and and the Japanese do wind up bringing these people eventually to to that area or or near that general vicinity, and it is indeed the 38th Infantry Division as well as part of the 229th Infantry Regiment, I believe, is what the Japanese. This is going to be one of the last. <clears throat> excuse me. This is going to be one of the last major reinforcements. I say major. I mean, it's a pretty good sizable amount of people that the Japanese are bringing to the island. This is one of the last major reinforcements that they try to undertake. Uh, and there's many reasons why that occurs, of, of which not the least of which are the sea battles that are occurring at the same time. Um, well, let's talk about Coley Point, Dave. What's what's going on out there? They, they since the uh, Vandegrift sends the Seventh Marines. He sends some other people out there, and he also sends later on some of the Second Raider Battalion. Second Raider Battalion, of course, is under Evans Carlson, and they're they're coming into the island here in a little bit later. But uh, let let's talk about Coley. What's what's going on out there? Well, well Coley Point is probably maybe eight, maybe ten miles to the east of Henderson Field. So Coley Point was the area that some of the Japanese had been landing earlier, a um, little bit further uh, east. I mean, you had the uh, Ichiki, Kawaguchi, they landed at Tavu Point, which isn't too far from Coley Point into the, the village of Tateri, where all this was occurring. So, yeah, you mentioned the Japanese regiment that was involved with the 2nd Division in their assault on the Battle of Henderson Field in mm-hmm. late October. Mm-hmm. That was the right flank, the one that really didn't get heavily involved in a fight under right. uh, Colonel Soji. So they ended up at Coley Point, and they were, were based there. So the Japanese plan was to land a whole division, as we mentioned earlier, the 38th Division at Coley Point. But then right before they could land, they changed their plans because they said, well, if we land a whole division on the east side, we can't, you know, we're having, um, we're having issues and problems supplying our guys to the, uh, the west 
of the perimeter. So if we land the whole division to the east, how are we really going to supply them? We'll have uh, split forces and we can't support each other. So they're going to land at a small token of probably about three or 400 troops at Coley Point. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the division was slated to land um, where the Japanese had been landing earlier at, at Cape Esperance on the, um, on the western flank. Yeah, on the left side. If you look at the, Hendersfield, you got left and right. So left is, is west and, and right is east. So, the, so you had roughly about 3,000 Japanese there in total. So they'd landed in 2nd Battalion of the 7th Marines under H.H. Hennigan, mm-hmm. you know, the famous Banana War Marine, Lieutenant Colonel. They were there, and that's what Vandegrift sent them out to find out what was going on. So they were actually, um, I think, if we're trying to forget, I forget which day. Anyway, it was early November. So they mm-hmm. were basically um, assaulted by a small group of, of Japanese. Mm-hmm. And, and then I had to redraw. But the radios weren't working quite well, which is you know, quite common, and they didn't get the word back. But Vandegrift and the rest of the division, um, high command knew something was happening. So they dispatched the um, 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines under Puller again to find out what was going. And they dispatched two battalions of the 164th U.S. Army Regiment. And this was the first time they were going to go on the offensive. You know, they, as we discussed in Battle of Henderson Field, they did quite well in the defensive positions. Um, repelling those Japanese assaults. Yeah. So he had him under Rupertus. He was given once again, he's given command and they were on a maneuver to try to trap these Japanese uh, in there and wipe them out. Yeah. And, you know, it's important you mentioned the 164th because they, they're now, they're a blooded unit. You know, they've, they've seen combat. They've seen a lot of combat. They've seen that heavy, heavy action at the end of October there. Uh, they've been involved in patrolling actions. So, I mean, this is their first, they're, they're, they're a tried and tested unit. And as we're going to see when we start talking about more about the Army offensives here in, in just a few minutes, is that some of the Army units, the other Army units that are either on the island or are coming to the island, don't have anywhere near the same performance level that the 164th do, certainly at this time and then even later on. Um, so Be- before we jump off of that, uh, Dave, if you could, you know, help us understand the here we had an army regiment that was attached to a marine division the first marine division is that correct yeah. yeah then that happens on and off throughout the war um i don't know of any time when marine regiments were attached to army divisions do you uh yes in this campaign and we'll discuss it toward the end is a whole division there's so, a combined division of Marines and Army mm-hmm. called the CAM Division. Attached to AmeriCal? No, they're called the CAM Division. It was just a hybrid division they formed mm-hmm. for about two or three weeks on Guadalcanal. Okay. But, yeah, just um, to rack my brain real quick, I don't – I know there was auxiliary Marine units attached to Army, mainly core mm-hmm. elements. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I don't think of a regiment. the AmeriCal – when the Army Americal Division comes in, it's a hundred percent Army, though. Yes, that's yes. It's a the twenty okay. third is the officially uh, we're known twenty third U.S. Army mm-hmm. Division, but the Americal formed the New Caledonia. Yeah, yeah. So they're yeah, these order of battle issues sometimes become confusing. Here you have a hundred sixty fourth Army Infantry Regiment, but they're part of the First Marine Division, and that's an important uh, point. Mm-hmm. To keep in mind. Yeah, you'll see in the Guadalcanal campaign, just like the Cactus Air Force. I mean, everything was hybrid. And the guys worked, and yeah. all the services worked together. I mean, I think there was a, 
out of necessity that, you know, we're here now. We have to work together. I mean, all yeah. of Put, put aside our people believe that jointness began with Goldwater Nichols in the 1980s. And this is kind of the point we were doing jointness very, very well. Even in World War II, we actually started regressing and overcomplicating it over time. Yeah, but this is not a, a lot of the units, you know, as to Dave's point, you know, I mean, there were ad hoc units that were put together. So you're talking like we talk about the Raiders and the pair and the paratroopers. You know, those those guys mm. were combined at, at Edson's Ridge. They were combined into, you know, essentially one. I don't want to say large, but, you know, larger fighting force. So this happens a lot, uh, especially in Guadalcanal, because you, you, at certain times you were scraping the bottom of the barrel. You had to use whatever you had to use, you know. But the situation right. for the United States, at least at this point, is turning significantly better than it had been, you know, even a month before. Um, so the offensive around Coley Point goes pretty well. You know, it, you, you talked about uh, Chesty Puller. And the Chesty Puller at this time, his his uh, Marines, his 1-7 Marines are they're 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 worn out i mean they're 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 tired you know they they've taken some casualties you know they're taking some you know everybody on guadalcanal's got friggin dysentery and or malaria at the same damn time so these guys are they're they're tuckered out but puller again leads his people into action he gets wounded here does he not dave chesty yes it's the only what's 38 years of combat service or yeah. marine service is the only time in his whole history he was ever wounded Mm -hmm. He's wounded here at Guadalcanal. He was, they were moving, they were on the left flank or puller and they were in a thick jungle and the coconut grows and he's got his command group. And as we discussed earlier, puller always liked to be up front and he couldn't see anything. He's trying to work out what was going on. And the Japanese had landed a, a 70 millimeter. I think it might've been one of their 77 millimeters. Anyway, it was a, it was a small field gun. Field piece. Had, yeah. yeah. And they landed one and it Gavava Creek is the area not too many people who visit Guadalcanal even know where Guava Creek or even go there, but I used to take a few people there. Um, and that was the pocket they had the Japanese trapped in. And Puller couldn't to see what was going on. He'd moved out onto the beach with his command group. And obviously when, once they hit the, the beach, a whole uh, command group with the radios and you know a cluster of guys trying to find out what was going on. That was a prime target for that Japanese field gun. So the Japanese field gun took a shot and hit hit Puller's command group, killed a few and, and severely wounded uh, Puller. He got a lot of shrapnel in him. There's a couple of uh, versions in the Burke Davis book. He says Puller was then shot by a, a rifle. But then um, in John Hoffman's book, which is a friend of mine, Johnny's, I think it's the definitive uh, biography uh, called Chesty on Puller, mentions that it was just shrapnel. And what Puller didn't, Puller being Puller didn't like go out of the fight at that stage. He was wounded, severely wounded. Uh, the the radio wire, the field phone wire was was cut. And Puller being Puller crawled out and fixed it on his own, repaired the wire, uh, crawled back under command, um, trying to get some artillery fire because had some of the 10th Marine artillery uh, from the 2nd Marine Division in support. So they, they, were, um, they got enough artillery fire and they got enough um, fire suppression to suppress that. And then Puller uh, refused to be evacuated. Once again, he was severely wounded and had shrapnel. He goes, well, I can I can still fight. I think he said something to the words that, you know, when I grew up in Virginia, there was enough um, um, old men walking around with, with with Yankee rust in them or Yankee lead. You know, I can I can survive or something. Words to that effect of puller being puller. But um, he remained during the night. You know, they dug in for the night and, and then the next morning he could barely walk and he was he couldn't function anymore. And then he, mm -hmm. he said, look. I can't turn my command over to my uh, captain. He's a junior captain. 
So they sent, I think, a major up from the perimeter to take over. And Pullard said, look, uh, I won't be carried onto the, the landing craft. I'll walk. So he hobbled onto the landing craft. They took him back to the perimeter, and they performed surgery on him. They left a, a, shrap, a, a bit of shrapnel in him. And that was that was the saying. He said, uh, the doctor said, look, we need to, I think, evacuate you back in uh, New Caledonia to remove this. Um, for more surgery yeah big piece of metal and i think that's when he said look you know there was enough old men living uh, one running around when i was a little boy would would rust in them so i can survive and he did he he um he kept that piece of metal and then i think you'll discuss when you get to Peleliu how this old war wound from guadalcanal come back to to haunt him a bit because it was um severely affected his, his physically and, and maybe psychologically as well at, at Peleliu yeah oh, yeah and yeah, I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds with Peleliu now, but I mean, you know, Chesty Puller's a legendary character or figure, and he um, earned the reputation that that he has to this day. However, if there's one blemish in his record, and I've said this before, it is definitely his command of oh, 1st yeah. Regiment at Peleliu. Yeah. He, um, he, you know, and you got to wonder, Dave, to your point, was it, was it, I mean, it was hot as blue Hades on Peleliu the entire time, you know, he's suffering with a, with a recurring war wound from Guadalcanal, you know, his men are being killed by the bushel on Peleliu. And it, you got to wonder if it was a combination of a lot of things that just wore the man down and caused him to make the decisions that frankly killed a lot of Marines uh, on, on yeah. Peleliu. But, um, but that's another episode, but, but back to this injury and this whole performance Dave, you would think that I, I think you received another Navy Cross after this action. Is that right? No, he, he didn't. I think he received only a Bronze Star and, of course, a Purple right? Heart. Incredible, right? I mean, this is like close to Medal of Honor level performance. And did that conversation ever take place? And people recognize him as the most decorated Marine in history, even though he never received a Medal of Honor. But in, in aggregate, boy, oh, boy. There's almost nobody who's done as much or put up with as much as Chesty Puller, is there? Well, there was, I don't think I mentioned it in the last episode about Henderson Field, but Puller was actually recommended for a Medal of Honor. Mm -hmm. The only time in his career that I, I'm aware of, and it was recommended at, at regimental level right. um, for his performance that later earned him his third Navy Cross. Um, and it was put up to division level and they, they knocked it back. They downgraded it to a Navy Cross. Well, he was actually because there was been, you know, throughout the years have been you know, calls and requests to have one of his Navy crosses upgraded to the Medal upgraded, of Honor. Yeah. But he was actually recommended for the Medal of Honor for that um, mm -hmm. that battle. It's so, you know, we've talked about this before with different guys being recommended for Medal of Honor and either getting, you know, Navy Cross or Distinguished Service Cross, whatever the case may be. And, you know, some guys got the medal and it was like, mm, you know, maybe that maybe that action deserved a Navy cross, but there are certain actions. I think Puller's command of seven of, of, of one seven at, at, at Henderson field specifically was certainly worthy of a medal of honor. I mean, that that's yeah. my personal opinion. If he was going to ever get it, that would have been the time. And uh, you got to kind of wonder why he didn't, you know? Yeah. I, I never made and, sense that no. it's almost like somebody had a, you know, prejudice against him or something like that. I'm not sure exactly. Thought that he's already enough of a legend. He doesn't need to be more. Yeah. But, or, you know, and, and to some extent, I think there was a, in the Marine Corps, not true in the Navy, where commanding officers did receive medals of honor. 
um, routinely, there was kind of a bias towards presenting it to enlisted men, I think, in the Marine Corps, more so than officers. I don't know. I don't, and, I don't know. You see, you look at a lot of the a lot of the Marines that earned the Medal of Honor, I mean, all the way through the war, and there's a great, I would say the enlisted man population outranks the officer population at least two to one. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in particular, in the Navy, a submarine skipper might, or, you know, carrier skipper might have received a Medal of Honor for some action. Right. That almost never happened, to my knowledge, that the commanding officer in the Marine Corps did. Right. Um, Other than Vandegrift? Vandegrift is one example. <laughs> exactly. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> almost never. Not never. Almost never. Almost never. Yeah. So, Dave, there's another unit that's involved in this kind of after the action here at Coley Point? Well, it's not really after. It's a part of it, but it's it's later. And we haven't talked about these guys yet, and, and they do deserve conversation. And this is the 2nd Raider Battalion. You know, we've talked about the 1st Raider Battalion ad nauseum, Edson's people. This is Carlson. This is Evans Carlson's Raider Battalion. Um, they'd been on Guadalcanal. They hadn't been on there very, very long. Uh, they had seen action, of course, during the Macon Island raid in August of 42, where and we could do a whole episode on that alone, which is it. That's a fascinating event in Marine Corps history that, <laughs> frankly, went south pretty quick. Uh, you know, Evans Carlson um, almost got his whole command killed and captured. But that's that's another conversation for another episode. But the second Raider Battalion is now here on Guadalcanal under Carlson, and they execute what is known to history as the Long Patrol. Um, it's probably their defining moment, the second Raider Battalion of the entire war. Lay it on us. What is or was the long patrol? Why was it executed? And we can get into the, you know, what happened and everything here in just a few minutes, but what, why, why were they sent out there and what were they trying to do? Yeah. So this wraps up Coley Point. It initiated the second Raider. So at Coley Point, the the Seventh Marines and the 164th had formed a perimeter, and they were going to wipe these Japanese out at Gavava Creek. And the 164th, being uh, kind of new at maneuvering, didn't close uh, the bottom bottom of the the pocket, so to speak. And they left a small gap, which allowed Colonel Soji and majority of the regiment to escape. So they were going to escape and move back to the uh, Matanikau River and, and join the rest of the Japanese there. So they left about 450 Japanese as a rear guard, and they probably punched out about. 2,500 Japanese escaped. So there's a bit of controversy and, you know, and uh, with the two army battalions and they said they were slow in the first maneuvering, but anyway, those Japanese escaped. So Admiral Turner throughout the campaign, always wanted to use the Marines and in all kinds of different ways. And Vandergriff was, you know, to Vandergriff and the rest of the division commands, uh, I guess, frustration, but they wanted to form uh, airfield, a place called Ayola, which is mm -hmm. further down to the, the east. It was the one of the um, provincial uh, British colonial offices pre-war, where Martin Clemens, the famous coast watcher, was at. So Ayola was flat. Is going to put a big airfield there. So landed uh, some CBs, the 147th U.S. Army Infantry Regiment, and the Second mm -hmm. Raiders there, Ayola, to start building this airfield. And the engineers had landed there before, and some of the second Marines had landed there before, and they basically said, you can't build an airfield here due to it's too swampy and a number of other factors. So they, they pulled the plug there, but it allowed the second Raiders, once those um, Japanese had escaped the pocket, the Raiders were a bit further east, and Vandegrift, 
or Evans Carlson, the writer commander, landed in the perimeter and, and they said, we got a mission for you and your writers. Follow these guys and harass them and, and, and just see where they're going and just mm-hmm. constantly just harass. That's what you're designed to do, you know, to operate behind the lines and, and, and do guerrilla style tactics. And that was what Carlson and his guys excelled in, patterned after the Chinese. Mm-hmm. So that was their mission to follow this uh, column of 2,500 Japanese all the way to Mount Austin. Yeah. So they were given that mission to, to follow them. How many <laughs> raiders were there? I'm sorry. Sorry. How many raiders was in this unit? So it was probably a battalion. So probably a raider battalion, maybe six or 700. Okay. And, and initially there was, I think he had three companies and they, they wouldn't have a full complement because I think he had two other companies that hadn't landed yet. Yeah. yeah. Potentially three, three to four companies. They were smaller writers were smaller companies than the normal uh, Marine infantry um, regiment or battalion. So they go out. Um, they, they, they being the Raiders, they, they make this trek. And they, as you say, Dave, to your point, they're essentially following these Japanese and they're at certain points getting ahead of them and cutting different groups of them off. They're out there for how many days? I mean, it's it's a long time. It's not like a two-day patrol. I mean, hence the reason they call it the long patrol. But still, about I mean, 30 that's, days. Yeah, that's yeah. a hell of a long time to be behind enemy lines. I mean, when these guys got to Guadalcanal, they were in, I don't want to say, you know, peak physical condition because i don't think anybody who got to guadalcanal was in peak physical condition but they were in better shape than most of the marines that were there because they were relatively fresh when they got out of the jungle after this i mean these guys were bad off man i mean they were walking out but i mean they were i mean like, kind of to my point what i said before i don't think there was a single one of them that didn't have malaria and dysentery you know and then they were you know they were really bad off they'd been supplied with food and ammunition but not to the point where being you know healthy no no and i mean yeah yeah carlson you know once again he he patterned themselves after the chinese he learned from the chinese so they had a a sock full of rice and raisins and he said we'll eat like the the asians eating the chinese and once again they were they're kind of starting themselves from the from the get-go yeah dave is this the same carlson that led a group of raiders on a submarine-launched assault of yeah. Macon Island. Macon Island, yeah, yep. yeah, Evans Carlson, yeah. and yeah. and the and the exo was the Jimmy Roosevelt, which was the um, president's, president's son. son. Yeah, yeah. So the 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 second Raider Battalion had a lot of talent in it, and it wasn't, frankly, I'll probably get a little flack for this. It didn't have the talent that the first Raider Battalion did in terms of leadership. Um, Evans Carlson, you're going to get a little flack for that. I, well, so I mean, it, it is it is what it is. I mean, it's it, the the proof is in the pudding. I mean, it, you know, it, it, I don't care what people say it, it, it's, it's there. I mean, mm-hmm. Evans Carlson was a polarizing figure and, you know, not necessarily, although he was polarizing politically, but and that's not what we're here to talk about, but he, I mean, if you go back and you look at the history of the Macon Island raid, I mean, he really did. He, he damn near got his entire command killed and captured. It was, and it was a United States press, you know, pumped it up to be a big success. And it really, really, really wasn't. There's still Marines buried on Macon Island. But mm-hmm. um, my that point was before that was while we were landing on Guadalcanal, as I recall. It was, it was August, August of 42. It was in August, yeah. It was in yeah. August of 42. Incredible. But uh, my point in all this is, is that they they performed well. The enlisted men performed and, and the officers performed well, but it, it, at a great cost to the 2nd Raider Battalion physically and emotionally. When they got out of the jungle, when they came back to the Marine perimeter, they were 
done, man. And I mean, that's pretty much all you hear from them on Guadalcanal is this patrol because it just sucked the life right out of them. But on the positive side, on the plus side of this, they eliminated what between four and five hundred Japanese. At least that's the claim uh, from the Raiders. Yeah, they. they oh, I forgot. Yeah, almost almost six hundred. They were talking about. They lost Was 16, 16 Raiders. A lot of these yeah. Japanese. Um, they killed them on the side of the trails or in in the mm. hospital beds. Mm. Obviously, they didn't take any prisoners. They're behind the lines. A lot of the Japanese were you know wounded and sick and disease. Right. And they used to just harass the Japanese. They'd find the Japanese sleeping, or they'd find them. They just harass them. And obviously, you had to. I had to mention Solomon Islander scouts. Yeah, mm-hmm. Jacob Vuza, the famous um, Solomon Islander. So they were leading the Raiders. You'll see a lot of the photos. And yeah, I think they had something like 50 Solomon Islanders between scouts and porters. Mm-hmm. And they were the real instrumental. And they would find the Japanese and the Raiders would just would, would just kill them all. Yeah. And I mean, this this is, you know, kind of par for the course for the Japanese when they're pulling out of a a position, you know, back from Henderson Field, Edson's Ridge. Coley Point, the Matanikau, when they're pulling back through the jungle, they're leaving their dead and dying behind by the bushels. And you you said yourself that you can even sometimes still find remnants of the Japanese along the trails today, right? Yes, there still remains everywhere. I mean, yeah. once the jungle, you can just dig in the jungle, um, I guess, covering the jungle floor, as you call it. And yes, you would find the remains yeah. of weapons and and human human remains and all kind of things. No. Yeah. I mean, the jungle was almost the Japanese worst enemy, frankly, at some points in the Guadalcanal campaign. Well, let's let's move on. Let's move up a little bit forward here. Let's talk about uh, some of these final actions that occur on land and here at Guadalcanal, some of the final large actions that occur. Um, talk about the Japanese supply situation. Now, the Japanese supply situation on Guadalcanal, Guadalcanal was infamously poor, and, that, and that's putting it mildly. Um by December 1942, that supply state had reached an absolute critical point. You know, the, the Japanese Navy, the Imperial Navy had basically shot the works and trying to resupply the Japanese soldiers that were there because, you know, they'd been defeated numerous times at sea. Um, only about 12,000, my numbers are saying, only about 12,000 of the reported 20,000 Japanese on the island were fit for duty. And frankly, that number itself is arguable. And and the reason for that, of course, is malnutrition, disease, uh, wounds, you know, suffered in battle and different things like that. I mean, these guys, the, the Japanese that were there, for the most part were, and I, I'm not, you know, I mean, they were skeletons of their former selves. I mean, they were in horrible physical shape. They could still fight, as we'll see. But they were in horrible, horrible, horrible physical shape. That being said, on the United States side of things, the tables have completely turned and that, you know, the U.S. is getting supplies by the literally by the shipload, um, not daily, but we're getting large, large supply contract transports coming in. They're dumping, you know, basically, you know, unmolested, you know, dropping off supplies and people. Um, this is, you know, completely opposite of what the Japanese are experiencing. You know, anytime they try to land anything and all that, they're, they're harassed by Cactus Air Force or they're shot up by you know, American destroyers or PT boats or what have you, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're harassed constantly. Um, 
there's more facilities that are sprouting up around the American perimeter now. You know, there's all kinds of support facilities that were never there that would have only been pipe dreams to the poor Marines in October. I mean, literally, like even two months before, these would have been, you know, something, that, a fever dream that one of these Marines would have had. But now they got all these things that are starting to pop up. And, you know, typical of the United States Marine Corps, as these, quote, luxuries are starting to pop up, the 1st Marine Division is pulled out of there. <laughs> So, so as some of the, yeah, and believe me, you know, as you and I have talked about many, many times, I knew a lot of guys that were in the first division on Guadalcanal and they were like, see you later when they got the hell out of there. They couldn't have been happier to leave that damn place. All those supplies did nothing to override the fact that many of them, maybe most of them had malaria and dysentery, right? So they got some medical attention. But they were still suffering. You know, and that's that's something we've never really talked about in any of these episodes that we've done on Guadalcanal is the physical state of the Marines. We talked about the supply situation. We talked mm -hmm. about the combat, obviously, ad nauseum. But there's something we never really talked about is the physical state of these guys. I forget the exact numbers, but the the the, the ratio was something like three to one. And it may have been more that there were there were three times as many Marines that were put down by disease than by Japanese gunfire. I, Dave, do you remember the exact ratio? But I want to say it was like three to one, wasn't it? Or something or very close to that. Well, as you know, the, it takes, the malaria takes a few weeks uh, to right. kick in. So by October of 42, there are about 2,000 2, reported cases mm -hmm. in the division. And by November, there was over 3,000 reported cases. And I think when they left the island, it was something like 8,000 all up. Marines had had malaria. And then once they reached um, Australia, because they were taking, some of them were taking any, any uh, malaria suppressants. Mm -hmm. um, the ones when they had it. Yeah, when they, yeah, exactly, when they had it. And then obviously they quit taking it when they got to Australia. Then it really kicked in for, oh, and, and recurring, as you know, malaria recurs. So they were very physically uh, spent. And even today, you go to Guadalcanal without people shooting at you, whatever, and it's, quote, modern. And you can, you'd still get malaria, you still get dengue fever. You go mm. out in the jungle, just living in the jungle a week, and you're physically spent. These guys are there for four months. Mm. And there was no rest and relaxation area on Guadalcanal. They sent you back to the R&R &R section. That was, that was the middle of the V-ring. That's where you got the daily bombings and the naval bombardment. That was right. where the rest area was. So right. there was no, no break from it. Right. Yeah. I, I knew I knew a guy named Frank Pomeroy who was a H Company Second Battalion first. And they were he was one of the guys at Tenerife River. <clears throat> and um he um uh, he talked about the rest areas on Guadalcanal. And I, I use air quotes with that rest areas. And they were usually their rest areas and their rest time were working parties. And and for them, for specifically Frank, they were talking about working parties where they were filling in holes on the airfield. So, you know, there was no downtime on Guadalcanal yeah. really you know if you weren't getting shot at you were working and if you weren't getting shot at and working you were sweating and shivering and shaking from malaria so it was a miserable existence for those people and then yeah. you know they get pulled off in December and I know Dave recently you posted on your Facebook page a picture a couple of pictures of those Marines being or some of the Marines being pulled off of the island and I mean you know there were guys that lost upwards of 40 and 50 pounds or more from just malnutrition, stress, you know, tropical diseases. You know, of course, there's the famous stories of when they're being pulled, literally physically pulled aboard the transport ships to get them out of the area that they had to be physically 
pulled up the Lifted. rope nets. Yeah, because they did not have the strength to climb up the nets. That's shown in the miniseries Pacific, but that's true. You know, that's a true thing. These guys were, they were spent. So when they yeah, left Guadalcanal, they waved goodbye. Yeah, there's some footage that shows the Marines. And, and from those photos, those photos were still shots from the footage. And just the ramps on the landing craft. I remember there was one scene there that he couldn't get up the ramp to the landing craft. And they had to pull him over the ramp of the landing craft, which was only about three foot high. Yeah. 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 They were they were done. They were done. But when the when the when the first Marine Division's rolling out of rolling out, when they're getting the hell out of, of Guadalcanal, there's a lot of other units that are coming in, um, mostly army. They're 182nd and 132nd Infantry Regiment of the American Division come and join their brothers from the 164th there. Um they come ashore in November and December respectively. Um, the 147th Infantry Regiment uh, of the Army, as well as the 2nd Marine, as you said, Dave, the 2nd Marine Division's 8th Marines are coming ashore in November. They're coming a little bit earlier. Um, there's artillery, tons of artillery now, uh, construction facilities, aviation facilities out the wazoo, additional support elements, including, you know, CBs that you talked about and things like that. Guadalcanal, and this is something that I think people need to understand is what, you know, you, you look at Guadalcanal in September, August, September, October, and it's, you know, like, you know, privation island. There's like no support facilities, nothing. By the end of the hell, by the middle of 43, Guadalcanal is like the major training base in the South Pacific for the United States. It's huge. And there's all kinds of support facilities. A lot of facilities. Like, by yeah, the, tons, yeah, tons, tons, tons. And one of those um, soldiers who came ashore mid-November was part of the 57th Combat Engineer Regiment was a Corporal Joseph Talone, who, you know, a whole bunch of people, Seth, that I and I don't. One guy I knew was Joseph Talone because it was my uncle. And so I don't know if they augmented the CBs or replaced the CBs, but, but he was there from mid-November, I think, until they got transshipped to <laughs> go to the next battle. Damn. He ended up just uh, two years later as a master sergeant, from corporal to master sergeant in two years uh, during the Philippine operation but yeah, um, that'll show you the attrition rate too to get that kind of promotion and that, that that's right amount of time. um on december 9th 1942 uh united states army general alexander patch succeeds marine general vandegrift as overall commander of guadalcanal forces um vandegrift of course leaves when his beloved first marine division leaves as well um by the end of the month of December, what's left of the 1st Marine Division is gone. I think the 5th Marines are the first ones out of there, aren't they, Dave? Yes. Yeah, and then they're followed by the 1st Marines and then the 7th Marines. I think the 7th Marines are the last ones to go, fittingly, because the, they're the last ones. And the poor 2nd Marines. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, if you remember, they were the ones that augmented the uh, the 1st Marines. And they, they, in fact, the 2nd Marines were the first ones to land in the Guadalcanal campaign. Right. They were officially part of the 2nd Marine Division, so they had to remain. It, but they left in January. Yeah, they, they wasn't they weren't impressed <laughs> <laughs> so so now now that now that alexander or, or archer or alexander however you want to say general vandegrift is gone uh patch is now in he's the head banana he's in command his one of his first orders that he has given is to eliminate what is left of the japanese you know this is a very broad order very easy to say very difficult to do um 
once he gets this order, he requests more troops and naturally, and, and those troops that do come are what is going to be known as Tropic Lightning. That's the 25th Infantry Division. They, they, they arrive um, and they augment the army troops there. Now, one of the first army actions is to, major army actions is to eliminate the Japanese around Mount Austin. Um, this is a, excuse me, this is an offensive uh, that is undertaken because of major Japanese infiltration tactics, Dave, they're, they're harassing a lot of the army lines and some of the supply uh, dumps and, and the airfield to a point or airfields, plural, to a point. And Patch has had enough of this stuff. And he decides he's like, all right, we're going to get rid of these people and let's do this. Um, and the army, as we'll see here in the next few minutes, the army has a lot to learn, don't they? Yeah. So Mount Austin, that was always, in fact, that was one of the first objectives when the Marines right. landed, you know, the, the, the grassy no found out it was a bit further than they they were anticipated so there's always a thorn in their side because observation of the airfields and the landing all the beaches and everything and they wanted to wipe it out but vandegrift never had the resources so he just kind of left it in place so the as you said patch was given a command wipe out the japanese or eliminate japanese on the island uh, the head u.s army general Harmon, uh, u.s army general major general Harmon, from the southwest uh, the south pacific not southwest but the south pacific um had actually landed on the island uh he wasn't in charge but he was the overall commander patch was in charge so the u.s army wanted to continue their offensive past Matanikau, point cruise all the way to the end of the island but they knew that left flank they knew there was some japanese up there they didn't think there were many on mount austin that was to, to be their left flank and it would be a obviously if you had your left flank exposed so Let's just wipe out those Japanese on the left flank. And also, like you just mentioned, there was some infiltration tactics. The Japanese were coming down on Fighter 2. Uh, auxiliary field destroyed, I think, a, a couple of P-39s, some fuel stumps. Mm -hmm. So he said, Let, let's just wipe those guys out. So he tasked the 132nd Infantry Regiment to do this. They just landed on the island for about a week at that stage. It really wasn't acclimatized. Um, they're a brand new regiment. He says this is a good blooding or testing ground for these guys. There's probably about 200 remnants or maybe 150, 200 Japanese up there because they'd done some patrolling and they didn't find really many Japanese abandoned positions. So it gave the, the 132nd the task of eliminating uh, the Japanese on Mount Austin. And then once they eliminate him, then they were going to push through with his two division attack uh, to the west hold one division, leave one division back to hold the airfield and had the other two divisions. By that stage, majority of the second Marine division had landed, not all of them. And that was going to be the, the plan. Yeah. That's the plan. Well, you know, the plan doesn't always, you know, as I forget what Bill's famous survive contact is. with the enemy. There it is. <laughs> I never survives contact with the enemy. That's it. That's it. So like to Dave's point that uh, the 132nd selected for this assault, uh, initial probing attacks are met with fierce Japanese resistance and that that fierce Japanese resistance essentially stops the United States army. Boom. Right in its tracks. Um, there's, there's, a, um, there's, it's not just infantry, right? There's still Japanese artillery on the Island. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. And, and it, it's an inauspicious start to this assault, to this offensive here is that the army's, you know, this, as Dave said, it's a brand new unit, but still, they 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 meet the enemy and they're they're halted for several days, right, Dave? I mean they're they're held up there for a couple of days. It's not until Christmas Eve that they actually start renewing their attacks again, right? 
Yeah, so they moved up. They they lost one of the battalion commanders from the, mm-hmm. the third battalion, the lead up, Lieutenant Colonel Wright. So if you go to Guadalcanal today, there's a the road leading up to Mount Austin. It's called Wright Road, named after him. So they lost the battalion commander. What the Japanese had had is a place called the Gifu. The Gifu was a very uh, top of Mount Austin. It was a 1,500-yard horseshoe-shaped um, reinforced coconut log bunker supporting bunkers, probably about 50 bunkers, um, that dug in there. Most of these bunkers were, like I said, well camouflaged, uh, had two or three machine guns apiece in them. About 500 Japanese were up there. That was uh, old friend Colonel Oka and his his guys up there in the 124th and the 228th Regiment. They were dug in heavily. So what the Japanese had planned to do, that was the most uh, heavily defensive uh, fortified position in the Guadalcanal campaign. So the Japanese said, look, we'll go on the defensive right now because we expect to to have the 38th Division, the 51st Division. There was all these plans in place to renew their offenses. So at this stage, what we need to do is to dig in, hold that area with what we've got, because we can't go on the offensive like you mentioned before because we don't have that capability, get further troops in there, and then renew our offensive. So they dug in very uh, heavily up there. And the the Army, when they hit hit the Japanese, they went in and had to go into the jungle. And there's reports from some of the vets. They didn't even see the Japanese bunkers to the three to four to five feet away. Mm-hmm. Then they opened up on them. And they were mutually supporting. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then what the, the they kept committing in one battalion, then the second battalion, they had two battalions. They kept moving to the left flank and try to find the Japanese uh, perimeter. They kept extending the line to left, 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 the 132nd Regimental Commander. And then they finally found out the Japanese have a, a full uh, extended perimeter horseshoe shaped perimeter so they dug in the americans dug in the japanese dug in they faced each other and this went on for a period of about four weeks they dug in at one stage the one battalion of the 132nd they'd found a, a way behind the japanese the hill 27 so if you go to my videos i got one called the hill 27 in the gifu and hill 27 looks exactly like it is today so they moved one battalion they come up behind the japanese on hill 27 it was unmanned and they had a Japanese had a 70 millimeter uh, mountain gun up there. And it was sitting by itself. The crew was in the shade about 70 yards away, they said. So they came over, surprised them, killed the crew, and they dug in. The Japanese had like six counterattacks to try to push them off. And the Japanese couldn't do it. So at that stage, they had to, they had to enclose the Gifu. Then the Japanese had only one supply trail that was on the western side, and it's straight down into the Matanikau, um River Valley. So at least they knew the 132nd by the end of December, the 132nd had enclosed those Japanese there. So that, that I guess, threat to Patch's left flank was secured. But the 132nd was, was basically spent. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. And that's, a, that's a good point. That's, a, that's something I want to touch on real briefly here. You know, the Hill 27 action, you know, they take the Hill, like you said, and, and they're, the, the Americans suffer significant casualties out there <clears throat> in that area. It's about 115 killed in action and a further 272 wounded in action just from the United States side alone. And you said the jungle, you know, and, and the terrain and the perimeter and, and not the perimeter, I'm sorry, the jungle, the terrain and the weather and the humidity and the heat and the disease and everything else. It affects the army troops significantly there. And it's very similar to what's happening or what happened to the Japanese previous and that, you know, from their offensives 
the Japanese are pulling back through the jungle and there's still people, even though they're not getting shot anymore, they're dying in the jungle. They're dying because of the wounds and, and the diseases and everything that's, that they're being exposed to. Well, the same thing's happening here to the army. Granted, not to the extent that it was happening to the Japanese, but we lost a lot of people after the fact because of the jungle trying to get in out of the jungle these guys are dying along the trail and that's that's something i don't think people realize is that you know the united states army suffered a fate in this particular action that is eerily similar to what the japanese suffered on almost every single assault that they ever had on guadalcanal and it's it's it just it it proves to to the average listener viewer or whatever you want to call it that guadalcanal itself was an enemy to everybody that set oh, foot so on it. Yeah, it it wasn't just the Japanese that suffered. It wasn't just the First Marine Division. If you were a human being and you had two feet on Guadalcanal, at some point you were suffering that Gua- that island's kicking your ass at some point in your existence while you're there. And so what it, was the last battle where we lost 115 KIA on Guadalcanal? This yeah, this is this is Hill 27. Well, that that Mount Austin. Before area. that, have, had we lost that many? KIA in one battle? I don't think in one uh, battle. Well, you, around that, you, we should have mentioned, we'll go backtrack now. After the Cully Point action, the uh, the Marines and the Army renewed their offensive um, past uh, at Point Cruz. Mm-hmm. And if remember the Japanese, if they if the, the Marines and the Army had continued pushing with Vandegrift, they would have probably went to the Poha River, but they right. had to withdraw back for the actions at Cully Point. So in about mid-November, they renewed their offensive. Once again, this is the Point Cruise line that no one even knows about. And they hit those uh, those hills at Point Cruise, the 164th mainly, and the 182nd had, had arrived at that stage, and the 8th Marines. And they basically butted their head against these Japanese defenses around Point Cruise on the hills there. Uh, the Japanese had those re- uh, reverse slope defenses. They had the draws, which went north or, or north and south, and the Marines, and they had... Uh, um, machine gun bunkers on the bottom of the of the, of the um, jungle floors and inflated fire. So the 164th, the 182nd, and the, um, the 8th Marines lost over 100. I think the 164th lost over 100 and something, um, like 120, 100, uh, over 100 KIA in that short time, just button heads against that. And that they dug in on that line. That was the point, called the Point Cruise Line. Mm-hmm. And the, the Marines and the, the U.S. at least had a, and the Army had a, finally had a permanent, I guess, position on the west side of Matanical in the first time in the campaign. They dug in there for six weeks. So if you go there today, and it's roughly the same area where the ravine was, where Puller, where um, Monroe, all that area. And once again, like I discussed before, when you go there today, no one really talks about that Point Cruise line. And that was a a heavy, heavy uh, fight. The 164th, basically, that was, if you speak to a 164th veteran, they That's won't say doing. the Battle of the Henderson Field was the, the hardest time. They say that Point Cruz fights on those hills is the hardest fight. That was that that went all the way up until well December, late December. So when that was when all that fighting was happening on Mount Austin, some of the fighting was still happening daily around the Point Cruz line, almost like a World War One style fight. Mm-hmm. Yes, and kind of almost like a never ending back and yes. forth. Um after the stalemate really is you know right near there around mount austin um there's another couple of instances in which the army tangles with the japanese at some odd named places galloping horse seahorse places like that and these are of course named because they're from the air they look like these 
And the, the hill shapes look like a galloping yeah. horse. Right, yes. right. So the 27th Infantry Regiment of the recently arrived 25th Infantry Division, Tropic Lightning, um, they receive orders to attack several hills that, and there's a ton of them. There's like a half a dozen or more. There's a bunch of little hills around there um, that make up the geographic feature nickname the galloping horse um the attack commenced with a tremendous artillery barrage by six battalions of artillery and coordinated airstrikes on suspected japanese positions in and around the valley and between the hills uh that were the primary objectives of these soldiers um the army gained some pretty significant they make some pretty significant gains in these attacks don't they dave they they the artillery softens up the positions pretty good and the airstrikes do and the army does kind of push through that area pretty well don't they yeah so these attacks was designed to isolate the gifford because like i said before there was a small japanese getting limited supply through the western side so what patch wanted to do these these series of ridges was to the uh, west of the gifford across matanikau and there was some Japanese up there. So if he, he thought if he could send the, the, the fresh 25th Division with their fresh regiments, they're going to isolate the Gifu. So the 132nd was pulled out around the Gifu, and the 35th Regiment, the regular army of the 25th Division, came in and took their place. So he had those guys isolated in the Gifu. He wanted to, or sorry, pinned in the Gifu. He didn't want to isolate the Japanese supply by sending this 27th Regiment to take those hills. Once the 27th have taken those hills, then the orders for the 35th, you're going to reduce the Gifu. You're going to destroy that pocket. But first, you had to isolate it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that, that was what led to those attacks. And you mentioned the, the January the 10th kickoff, the first time on target, division time on target, uh, artillery attack of the war, potentially. Uh, that's when they had the 155s there. It was a massive amount of artillery. So they started out moving up those hills. So if you go to my video uh, called the Charles Davis in a thin red line. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, that's the most perfectly preserved battlefield on Guadalcanal. It's very isolated and the hills are still there. It looks exactly the way they do. The number of hills, like you said, um, they, they kicked off. Two battalion attack. Um, it was the third battalion and the first battalion of the 27th. And these are regular, you know, old army guys. Um, the thin red line book with James mm -hmm. Jones, James the Jones, author. Yeah. And he was actually... Uh, a corporal at that battle was wounded. I think he's in the second battalion. So they pushed off. And it's a good, great study on how uh, water uh, will stop a unit in its tracks because they only had one canteen of water. In those days, they only issued one canteen of water. And then these guys wouldn't get much resupply. They had a small Jeep trail that went to Hill 55, and that was where their kickoff point was. So they moved off. They hit a few Japanese strong points, and they got bogged down, and they ran out of water. And this was the first attack. Any of these were regular army troops. The rest of the guys had been National Guard. These are regular army troops, old army, so to speak, with kind of like the 1st Marine Division. They were, I think, higher, better, higher quality because they were professional soldiers and they had the old old army corps of um, NCOs and officers. Right. Anyway, they, they, got, they got stopped in its tracks. And then a new battalion came in and to renew their, their assault on the second day. And that's when you, um, you get Charles Davis and I don't know if you want to talk about that. I, I do. Charles Davis, his story is, is you know, he's one of the few that, that isn't a machine gunner who, who receives the Medal of Honor for his actions here. He um, He's 2nd Battalion Executive Officer. He's Captain Charles Davis. 
um, near Hill 53 is where this occurs. Um, the American attack had stalled <clears throat> because of Japanese resistance. The night before Davis performs the action that, that he's recognized for with the Medal of Honor, he, he's running messages back and forth, is he not, if I, if I remember that correctly? It, yeah, so if you, if you ever go to the movie, the, the new movie, the modern movie, Thin Red Line, so we're not going to talk about the Thin Red Line movie, new, but anyway, yeah. um, John Cusack in the movie loosely plays Charles Davis. Charles Davis, yeah. In his action. Yeah. So Davis Davis was the executive officer. He wanted to get into the fight, so to speak, and he kept telling battalion commander, I want, I want in there, you know, put me in coach, put me in coach, basically, yeah. put it yeah. like a football game. Um, and then he's seen his opportunity to run up a message. He goes, oh, can I run a message to the company commander? Yeah, here you go, Davis, just go. He never came back. <laughs> he ran a message up and he remained up there with the guys. So the day before, him, him a lieutenant called uh, Sims and a couple of other guys had moved in because the Japanese, once again, like I said, the Point Cruz, they had a reverse slope position. Mm -hmm. So they had the bunkers on the reverse slopes. So you couldn't um, engage them with direct fire from the other slopes. So there, you had to go over the top of the crest, and that's when you ran into the Japanese pillboxes. So the Japanese let them, the, the Americans get on top of the crest, and that's when they would open up on them. Mm -hmm. So the Americans couldn't um, provide direct fire support to suppress those bunkers. So they had one cluster of bunkers that was covering a, a small gap. So every time the army would move through the gap, they would, they would hit them. So artillery fire couldn't reach them, machine gun fire couldn't reach them. So Davis and the other guys had crawled up to a ledge, and if you go there to this day, there's a big coral ledge on, on that ridge. So they peeked over the, the ledge to try to find his bunker complex. And that's when Sims was shot in the, in the head with a machine gun and died. So that to this day, it's called Sims Ridge. So he died. Then Davis located bunkers and he started calling 81 millimeter mortar fire. And, he, and they were suppressed there and he would call in a bit. And then at nighttime, they pulled back. So he gave his briefing to the battalion commander. And at this stage, the division commander was, was only about 200 yards away. And that was um, Joe Collins, or Lightning Joe Collins, who later gained fame as a corps commander in Europe, which was my grandfather's corps commander in Europe. That's why. And he always mentioned Joe Collins. But Joe Collins was a division commander. He was one of these guys that liked to be up front. And um, he was witnessing all this. And, and then Davis gave his briefing to his commander, and they said, this is what we'll do. So, Davis, what I want you to do the next day, um, I want you to move to the western side um, with four guys, crawl up to where you think the bunkers are, throw some hand grenades, try to distract them. So, the, the, in that stage, the uh, battalion commander and the whole company, battalion commanders going to lead them, they would move up to the eastern edge on that ledge. Then when Davis had distracted them, he was going to start blowing a whistle and that would be the cue for the whole company to up and over the uh, ridge mm -hmm. to assault those bunker complex. What Davis did when they got there, they started throwing the hand grenades. Japanese threw hand grenades back, didn't explode. Then, I guess in the heat of the moment, Davis and the other four guys just jumped up, and they started assaulting those bunkers themselves, and Davis right. in the lead. And Davis got to the first bunker, started throwing hand grenades in. He had his uh, M1 Garand. He had a stoppage, which he, uh, failed to fire. Then he just transitioned to his... 45 and he kept firing and um they actually took out those bunkers and then when he got to the bunker started blowing a whistle then the rest of the whole whole company come up and over the ridge and then they attacked up the ridge end up taking the uh 
the Japanese position. But this whole thing was witnessed by the division commander and, and a lot of the, the other time because it was, if you look at my video, um, that top of that um, ridge is a very highest area, area uh, right. that area, highest point of area. So he was silhouetted up there. So the whole division, well, I'm saying whole division, but probably two whole battalions and division commander witnessed this this whole metal. And he goes, "This is amazing what that guy did." And he lived lived he lived through the war, David. Yeah, yeah, he was skyline for that, that up, yeah. up on the top of the ridge right there. Yeah, it's that that's the kind of inspiring leadership that you want <laughs> when your when your attack is stalled. That's the kind of guy you want going up there, and and in you know providing that kind of leadership a rainstorm actually uh, uh, um, helped those guys because they were the battalion that relieved the first but the, the third battalion that did the assaults it, it, it petered out from the um lack of water but they were running out of water too mm-hmm. they couldn't get the water to them mm-hmm. overnight they didn't get any they had one canteen of waters but a, a brief rainstorm which happens all the time on guadalcanal came and there's enough to quench their thirst to, to re-energize them enough to to finish that assault. So, man, it's quite amazing. The good Lots Lord provides, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So over the next week after, after these actions occur, over the next week, the Army does eventually drive those people off, uh, the Japanese. They drive them off, drive them out, kill what is left of those people out there. Uh, it's estimated around, what, 400 Japanese are killed in that in that general vicinity. M-I-N-A. Yeah, so yeah. the, the seahorse. I don't yeah. know if we we can discuss the seahorse for sure. Yeah, because I want to talk about Fournier and uh, what's his name, Paul. Um, Paul. Paul. Yeah, Paul. Yeah, yeah. So, not to be outdone when it comes to to uh, machine gunner stories on Guadalcanal, there's two pretty damn important guys that are that are United States Army recipients of the medal here. And this isn't the Medal of Honor show, but I mean this these guys earned it and they need to be talked about because I guarantee you people who are listening to this have no earthly clue that there were two United States Army soldiers, one of which was 47 years old by the way, who was an infantryman or a machine gunner rather in an infantry unit that received the Medal of Honor for actions on Guadalcanal. We'll talk about that in a second. Um so you're 30, pointing out how young he was? <laughs> well compared to an 18 year old that's a that's an old man right there yeah, he is a, yeah, absolutely that is an old man so the 35th infantry regiment is assigned to capture the area near the galloping horse nicknamed as you said dave the seahorse seahorse um that defending the area were the remnants of the 124th uh japanese and our old friend colonel oka Guy seems to be everywhere. He may talk about somebody who was probably glad to get the hell away from Guadalcanal. <laughs> he got away. Yeah. Um, so anyway, as the Americans are advancing, they're come, they they came, they are coming under almost immediate Japanese attack that threatened their flanks. This is where these two gentlemen come into play. Uh, William Fournier and Lewis Hall uh, were both machine gunners in the uh, thirty four in the thirty uh, fifth Infantry Regiment. Both of their medals are posthumous. Dave, can you tell us a little bit about their actions here? Yeah, so their battalion, so two battalions of the 35th was left at, around the Gifu area to, to keep those Japanese in. So their battalion um, was going to flank uh, to the south and come up north and, and hit these two areas, I mean, Hill 44 and 43, which was named the Gifu, or sorry, the Seahorse. They were going to, uh, that was their objective. So they're moving up, as they're starting to move up into the first hill, they're crossing one of the small forks of the Matanical, real deep. If you can picture a real deep ravine, jungle ravine. Um, 
so they're they're advancing the first um platoon rifle platoons had moved up so fournier and hall was in a machine gun a squad so they're carrying a lot machine gun that the m1919 lot machine gun so they're moving up and the japanese had did a, a counterattack down the uh, basically river valley was a part of a headquarters element and and they seen the japanese coming and they had to spin around very quickly and try to stop these japanese because if not the japanese would hit the the rifle company right in his rear and, right. and they were as you can imagine they're going single file and it would have really stopped their attack and, and killed a lot of american soldiers so they responded very quickly um one machine gun crew was killed so fournier and hall because the the steepness of the the river valley they couldn't depress the machine gun enough by just laying it on the ground and firing so one of the um one of the, the two i forget which one took the machine gun tripod put it on his back and leaned forward and the other one took the machine gun and they could traverse it that way by putting it on his back and him laying down enough to elevate it straight down and then they fired it like that one's basically holding the tripod on his back and then just like a mobile machine gun mount and they're firing they're, they're stopping the japanese and holding the japanese off enough for the rest of the americans to to um, start deploying their forces to engage those japanese but in the in the heat of this this fight, uh, both uh, Fournier Hall was killed in action, yeah. um, holding a position. I think it was Hall who was forty seven years old. Hall was the one, if I'm not mistaken, had the the machine gun tripod on his back because he's killed right there. Like he he is killed right there. Fournier yeah. is he dies a couple. He's obviously severely when he dies like a couple days later yeah um, because of that. But I believe Fournier was the actual trigger puller and Hall was the mount if you will um but i mean that's Maybe, that's yeah. yeah that's serious that's serious stuff right there and so yeah, go, ahead. Just, no, go, ahead, go ahead what i was going to say is um th this is a remarkable conclusion to you know a long sequence of battles in guadalcanal and a while ago i, I talked about you know jointness and joked that it didn't start with goldwater nichols that that it, it existed in Guadalcanal. But the one thing I might criticize about our jointness um, during World War II was our failure to share lessons across services. So the Marines started this campaign right. in Guadalcanal and learned a lot of lessons about jungle warfare, including some of the things like the ravines and depression of of uh, the barrel of, of machine guns and things like that. Did we do a good job, even an adequate job, of sharing those kinds of lessons across the service from the Marines to the Army before they landed? Because there was plenty of time to do that. If somebody had been assigned to make sure they were trained for what they were going to face, did we? Yeah, I, I, we did. But um, in certain factors, I know some examples. We talk about mm -hmm. um, Ken Bailey, he was wounded. And he was sending back to New mm -hmm. Caledonia. So him and another Marine officer, this was in August, was was talking probably to these same officers here and giving them lessons learned. Um, after the Guadalcanal campaign, I know Puller and a number of other was sent on a, I think, uh, George Marshall, the chief of staff, sent Puller and a number mm -hmm. of other officers on like a tour of the Army bases um, in 1943. Lessons learned. They wrote a book. It's incredible. There's a book That's called um, Jungle Fighting or Lessons Learned on Guadalcanal. There's a whole book, and it's just basically excerpts 
of these guys telling lessons. Mm-hmm. And Apollo's in there. There's a number of guys. And Apollo's talking about the but Japanese it wasn't soon enough. You know, we, we need that. <laughs> yeah. 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 But it wasn't soon enough to help the 25th ID and and the other army units that landed in October, November timeframe. No, as I, we I, discussed before, it's a train Guadalcanal was a major training ground, but they did learn mm-hmm. lessons and they they built upon that for all their services. Yes. Yeah. And right. I mean, I think the case could be made, Bill, you're hundred percent right. And that, you know, while the Corps were the ones learning the hard way, l- learning on the fly, you know, and I, if you go all the way back to our episode, we're entitled Operation Watchtower. I called Guadalcanal the, the, you know, the classroom because everybody learned, be it in the air, on the seas, uh, in the jungle, where, what have you, how to fight a war against the, and win a war against the Japanese. Um, the army is no different, but you know, when you've got that resource there that is the first Marine Division people like Jesse Puller, you know, Vandergrift, uh, uh, Whaling, Edson. Edson, you know, all these people that have been in close contact, sometimes physically with the enemy in the case of Edson and, and you know, uh, you know, people like the Bailey, you know, earlier, you know, you would think that some of the army officers would have would have sucked this information up like a sponge. And to some, you know, they did. But. You know, there, there's there's clear evidence that that the army was trying to do things their own way, and that's yeah. that's the way of the service, man. You know, the army's no, they're not going to listen to the Marine Corps. What the hell do they know? Well, I don't know. They've only been here since friggin' August, but mm. you know, it is what it is. That that's that's that that inner you service. You work for the army. Remember, remember that, Seth. I do, I do, <laughs> abundantly clear. I do, I do. But 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 it's but it's the truth. I mean, if mm. you look at the performance of the two forces or uh, service branches here on this island specifically. You know, you can see that one didn't necessarily listen to the other too closely, or if they did, they were do- they were doodling in their notebooks. They weren't necessarily taking notes. And I mean, that's not necessarily to fault the the army because they obviously they performed heroically. I mean, in the case of Hall and and Fournier and 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 Davis and people and many many others like them, mm-hmm. um, the army's performance on Guadalcanal is not what it will be later on in the war in the Pacific. I mean, if you look at the army on New Guinea. They're they're doing good. They're doing good work there. Absolutely. And for the rest of the Solomon's campaign, they're doing excellent. And then God only knows the Philippines. You know, that's an army show. But but uh, and, and other islands, Okinawa, yeah. you know, the Marianas. I mean, go on and on and on and on and on. Right. But but this is where, you know, you would think some of those lessons that the Corps had learned the hard way mm-hmm. would have been absorbed a little bit better. But they just they're not. So once once they um, isolated the Gifford, the 35th went in and, and reduced it. And that was is a very. Uh, they brought in. They finally brought in three marine tanks. They borrowed three marine tanks, and they had the uh, division reconnaissance guys driving the tanks, the Stuart Light tanks. They brought three in, but only one made it up to the the area, and that was enough to, you know, that was the turning point because the the ja- uh, the Japanese didn't have any tank weapons. Uh, the army didn't have any flamethrowers. Contrary to what people think, there was no flamethrowers. They wish they had flamethrowers. They had the old fashioned way of hand grenades and rifles. And, they, and their um, mortars couldn't work. Uh, and even in the, the bunkers couldn't be taken out unless they got hit by 105 millimeter. So anyway, the, the one tank that got up there was enough to, to point blank take out these bunkers. So they reduced the Gifu from there. And then that, that allowed, once they reduced the Gifu, then Patch and the rest of the Army, and at this stage, January the 4th, the 2nd Marine Division was, mm. was formally formed. And a lot of people don't even know the 2nd Marine Division was even on Guadalcanal. You mentioned the 2nd Marine Division. They go, well, they wasn't on Guadalcanal. And yes, they were and yes, entirely. They were. they were there. 
it was quite um funny when we were talking about inner service. The division uh, assistant commander, a brigadier general of the Second Marine Division, was there. the 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 major general was still left in New Zealand because mm. he outranked and senior the army general patch on the island. So the army thought if they bring the marine general in, he would take um, command. And even the marine general says, "No, no, look, I'll just you know I'll default and." You can still re- retain command. But at this stage, there was a whole U.S. Army Corps there, the 14th mm-hmm. Corps. They made it a corps. So anyway, the, the – So that would have been commanded by a three-star? No, a two-star. Corps commander. But okay. he was – because there was two two major generals there, and they brought mm-hmm. the Army uh, – the, if the Marine major general would have came in, he was a – had more time and grade, so to speak. And he said, well, you outrank Patch. They couldn't have that. They mm-hmm. couldn't have the Marine out over the Army. So that's another example of inter-service robbery. Gotcha. So the second Marine division was there. He had the 25th division. So they're going to re- resume their assault and finish up the Japanese and push them. So they, they, they assaulted past Matanikau on that uh, Matanikau line we talked about. And they started pushing the Japanese uh, back. And this is, I want to mention the CAM division. Bill had mentioned it earlier. Um, so they patched, had a combined, the only time in the whole World War II, I think the only time in U.S. history, a combined Army Marine division. So you had uh, two army regiments and a marine regiment all combined into a, the whole division. The so they were there division. for about two or three, the CAM division, combined mm-hmm. army marine division. So they fought on the coast, the 25th crawled on the left. They pushed the Japanese back. At this stage, the Japanese already decided by the high command, we're going to evacuate Guadalcanal. And, and, but the Americans still thought that the, uh, the Japanese were still going to fight for it. But they pushed, 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 and they pushed them all the way back. Uh, to Cape Esperance, but the Japanese had landed a fresh battalion just as a rear guard unit to cover that um, withdrawal. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the Gallipoli campaign in World War One. You know, the, the most successful th- um, part of the Japanese campaign was their evacuation. Right. So in the early week of, of February 43, they evacuated anywhere between uh, 10 to 13,000 Japanese. They weren't in great shape. But they ended up evacuating them over a series of nights. I'm Which, shocked that an Australian brings up the Gallipoli campaign. Just really <laughs> surprises me. Australian American. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, the, the evacuation of the Japanese off of Guadalcanal is miraculous in and of itself, considering the fact that they were able to get these people out of there, not always successfully, but for the vast, you know, the majority of their operation there was successful, yet they couldn't keep them supplied so you know there's there's no you know conspiracy there i'm just saying it, it's it's rather miraculous that they could get these people out of there uh mm-hmm. without enormous losses uh you know and and i think that goes to show you know while yeah guadalcanal was swelling in terms of you know american presence there there the people that were there and this goes back to my point of guadalcanal just you know sucking the life out of everybody that was there the forces by the end of this campaign especially on the japanese but on the american side too despite the addition of fresh forces they were worn out man yes they were just worn out yeah. everybody was tired everybody was done everybody was spent and and there's a reason that things kind of peter out after february 1943 until you know later on in that year and again for the listeners a lot of the army units we talk about in this podcast no longer exist they've been disestablished or to use the navy expression decommissioned the 25th id of course still exists Mm -hmm. um my 11 years in hawaii i got to know them up in schofield barracks a little bit anyway 
Um, but the Americal division lasted through Vietnam, but I think it went away during while I was on the joint staff in the late, late early 90s, I think. Um, anyway, it's, it's interesting that some of these units you may not have heard of unless you're a World War II aficionado. It's because they don't exist anymore. A lot of oh, elements yeah. still National Guard units still right. to this day. Mm -hmm. they, they have a lineage. But there was more, right. something that a lot of people don't realize. There was more U.S. Army than U.S. Marines on Guadalcanal. Mm -hmm. In the end, there was more U.S. Army. In, in the end. Not yeah. many more, but there, there was there was many more. We're talking mm -hmm. about um, two and a half divisions. Yeah. Two and a half or plus more if you put auxiliary units. Yeah, and that's the U.S. Army on Guadalcanal. And that's hugely important. You know, when you think of Guadalcanal, you, your first thing you think of is the 1st Marine Division. And and that's rightfully so, because when you said there were two and a half ish, plus or minus a bit Army divisions, you got to remember from August until the 164th arrived in October, there was one <laughs> Marine Division on Guadalcanal. And even then, it wasn't a full division until September, until the 7th got there, too. And I mean, that's. That, that makes there's a reason that the first marine division uh, divisional insignia has guadalcanal written right down the middle of the number one and with the southern cross you know it's because that is their highest honor right there is is that is that campaign for guadalcanal because they were the the lone wolf man they were the only guys there for a long long time can i mention one quick thing from a a veteran talking about a um they, it was like a veteran association meet after the war. Mm -hmm. We talking about different stages of Guadalcanal and who was there. He was the first Marine Division um, vet, and he says it was at a like a reunion. All yeah. of these Guadalcanal vets, and there's some Army guys there, and Navy. But uh, he said there was different stages. Yeah, the first stage, first two or three months, you could mm -hmm. tell who the the guys there first two or three months, and then the second stage, the guys who were there from you know say from uh, November to February. And then the guys who were there after there was no fighting, right. he said, we were there. He said, there was just two army guys talking about the mules. Cause I did use some mules in the hills, mules, mules. And this Marine goes to the other Marine. He goes, mules. Do you ever remember any mules on Guadalcanal? He goes, nah, nah. If we had mules when I was there, we ate them. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, that was the distinction. He could tell which stage, which vet. Yeah, was the ones who were eating the mules, the ones who would have, you loaded loaded the mules loaded right? the mules yeah. yeah he said if there were mules there like the first at the very beginning he said we would have ate them all <laughs> and there's no doubt i mean i don't think that's an exaggeration he probably oh, wasn't trying to be funny he was being serious yes yeah there's a reason that the japanese called it starvation island yeah. uh, there, there's a reason that the marines you know called it the island and that's you know just the island you know and it, it had a mystique all of its own it still has a mystique to its own or the canal or the canal, yeah, yeah. And the no, I, and the, the local Solomon Islanders to this day, you know what their name for it is? Hmm. The Big Death. Yeah, yeah. The Big Death, because that's all they know. There's a lot of people die. The big big fella death. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Japanese also called it the Island of Death. I mean, it was you know yeah. it was it was just this or the graveyard of the Japanese army if, and the navy too. I mean, it was just this sump of human life. You know, it just. For what six a cool months. Monty Python, the Japanese Navy would have said, I'm not dead yet. Do you want to mention real quick the, the casualties or the, the figures? So yeah, well, I, yeah, yeah I do. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, I don't have those numbers in front of my face at the present time, but 
you know, it's something we've made a point too is that the the, the United States Navy actually suffered more casualties killed mm-hmm. in action anyway than did the Marine Corps. But uh, I also say Army. that the and, misery uh, index was much higher for the Marines. Absolutely, yeah. there's no there's no denying that there's higher no death for the Navy, higher misery for the Marines. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So there was something like uh, um, about fifty five hundred uh, U.S. and and Allied Australian sailors that died in the campaign. It was about fifteen to sixteen hundred uh, ground troops that died. Probably about uh, five hundred of those are U.S. Army, rest were Marines. Um, Japanese figures, who really knows? There was probably anywhere between thirty to forty thousand Japanese on the island. It served mm-hmm. on the island. Anywhere between twenty-five to uh, thirty thousand died. Ground troops only. Yeah, ground troops, and then there's probably about nine, nine or ten thousand of them died from disease and starvation. Right. So roughly twenty to twenty-five thousand, you could probably say the Japanese died because they, they say they, they evacuated ten to thirteen thousand. Yeah. Dude, compared so to fifteen hundred ground troops for the American side. It. it yeah, but the suffering, as we mentioned, there was eight thousand. Yeah. Marines on the first Marine Division, eight thousand mm-hmm. uh, suffering from malaria alone. I mean, you look at a division, say for example, fifteen thousand, nine thousand are in the rifle companies. There you fighting troops. So if right. you say mm-hmm. a division loses three thousand men, you think well, that's not many. They got fifteen thousand. That's three thousand frontline fighting troops. That's yep. a major, that's a major impact. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, we could we could go on forever. <laughs> it's basically if you count illness as a casualty, one hundred percent casualty rate. Oh yes, it was. Oh yeah, uh, probably probably more than that. Frankly, yeah. I mean, because you yeah. got guys that are going back up. It doesn't get you a purple heart, but but it counts for putting you down. Well, you know, you say that you say that you don't actually get the medal of the purple heart. But I remember mm-hmm. my buddies from First Marine Division who were on the canal. They said that they while they weren't wounded, their purple heart was the malaria that they carried all the way into the fifties. Yeah, yeah. So keep that in mind. Well, gentlemen. uh, with that, I think we're going to wrap up this episode. Uh, we want to thank you all for listening in or watching our conversation. Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast wherever you receive your podcast. Give us a rating and review. We do appreciate it. Uh, check us out on YouTube. I know the great majority of you are, and we thank you very much for that, for putting up with my face every week. Um, Bill's a handsome guy. Dave's a handsome guy. <laughs> and then you just got me. So. <laughs> Anyway, like uh, look us up on Facebook and uh, subscribe and like our page and all that jazz up there as well. If you are so inclined, uh, send us an email at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we do respond. It takes us a little while, but we do get to you, I promise. Every comment, every email is read. Not They're not all responded to, and that's, there's no preference. It's sometimes things just slip through the cracks. So if you haven't gotten a response, I apologize. Um, but with that being said, I want to thank you again for watching, listening. My name is Seth Parrott and Bill. Yeah, and I want to thank everybody as well as we record this in early January 2023. Um, we just passed 50,000 YouTube views and 15,000 audio downloads. So thank you all for watching and listening. We're getting there. Dave, thanks again, man, for for hanging around with us. and We'll be talking to you again. No, I really um, love the opportunity and I really enjoy talking to you guys. Good, man. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right, guys. Until next week. Thanks.